This, this is the second, second Story Podcast. On this week's Second Story Podcast, we bring you a story written and performed by Sahar Mustafa. Sahar performed this story with Second Story in April of 2012 at Webster's Wine Bar in Lincoln Park. The theme of the evening was Rights, Radicals, and Revolutionaries, Stories of Rebellion. This story was curated by Bobby Badrisky, with performance direction by J.C. Ava Lotus and a sound design by Nick Kawahara. With her story titled Unveiled, Second Story presents Sahar Mustafa. So I'm standing outside room 305 at the Best Western in Gurney Mills, and it's like that scene in The Shining with Jack Nicholson, except he's standing outside room 237, and on the other side of his door is a beautiful, sexy, naked woman in a bathtub. In my case, it's just the opposite. A completely veiled woman with nothing except for her hands showing was waiting for me. Much to Jack Nicholson's disappointment, that woman he's getting busy with turns into a decrepit, ugly, craggly old woman. But luckily for me, this concealed woman is my best friend in the whole world. So even though she adopted a religious lifestyle that I could not possibly fathom, we could still pick up where we left off over 20 years ago, right? Wouldn't she still accept me, even though I'd become a lackluster Muslim? <laughs> the year was 1984 when I saw Basima for the first time. We attended the same private girls' school in the Palestinian West Bank. We were both born in the U.S., then uprooted by well-intentioned parents who replanted us in the old country, as they called it, a place that did not feel native to us at all. My parents had traded Lake Michigan, grass, and bungalows for a desert, as far as us children could tell. As soon as we descended from the plane, an arid heat consumed us. And on our way to our new house, we drove past sandstone cliffs mottled with cacti and thorn bushes. We were already thirsty for the green landscape of Illinois. I had already put in one year before Basima arrived, uh, and on the first day of our sixth grade year together, I watched her from a distance as she stood timidly next to her older sister in the courtyard. Basima was petite and pretty. Next to her, I was awkward and lanky, tall in a way I couldn't appreciate at that time. But instead, I wanted to fold into myself and disappear. But Basima never made me feel inadequate or ugly. She was the kindest girl I had ever known up until that point in my life. We soon discovered we were both born exactly a week apart, had fathers and three uncles with the same first names. Granted, Muhammad is not a stretch, <laughs> but it seemed like we were destined to be friends. Being a middle child made me feel less than opulent, but Basima saw more than a straight-A perfectionist struggling to be visible, let alone heard in my family of six kids. She appreciated my quirky sense of humor and shared my love of lip-syncing. On nights when I slept over at her house, we'd create dance numbers to whams, wake me up, before you go-go, and play fortune teller. Remember that game? You list four hunks you want to marry, four places you want to live, and four cars you want to drive. So when it was my turn, Basima would turn to me and declare, you will marry Kirk Cameron, live in Hawaii, drive a station wagon, and have 10 kids. And then we laughed so hard, hugging our sides in that exquisite pain of childish mirth. We were sad when Ramadan, the fasting month, came around because we couldn't properly socialize for 30 days. But as soon as the new moon appeared and we could eat again during the day, we were back to our old antics. And together, 
we transition into that awkward preteen phase where hair begins to grow in obscene places and you start smelling a B.O. all of a sudden. And those designer imposter perfumes did little to defeat the musty, body-snatching puberty monster that had invaded our limbs. We were curious about sex and all of its disgusting attributes, though we agreed they seemed necessary. I secretly read Bassima steamy excerpts from Sidney Sheldon and Jackie Collins' novels underneath the covers at sleepovers. One day, Bassima wrote me a note. I have something important to tell you, she wrote. Important in all caps, of course. What is it? I asked her immediately at lunch. Remember that pervert in my village, she started? The one who was peeping in my window? Yeah. This was going to be good. For young girls who only had a nebulous understanding of sex, deviant behavior was even more enticingly mysterious. Well, she continued, he was playing with, you know, himself and left something on the wall outside my window. <laughs> left what, I asked? A message of some kind? <laughs> I'll show you when you come over this weekend. Stealthily, like prowlers staking a house, we sneaked up to the wall outside Bassima's bedroom. She pointed to a dried and cracking stream of semen. He had left a token of himself, all right. As adults, the appearance of semen in odd places is no longer so startling. But as young teenagers, we obsessed about that spot on the wall for months. No amount of Jackie Collins could have uh, prepared us for the real deal. But deep down, we were good girls. We obeyed our parents. We fasted. We said bismillah before meals and alhamdulillah when we were full. We were typical, happy Muslim girls. Soon after the semen incident, our families were forced to leave the West Bank when the first intifada broke out. We were too westernized to withstand curfews and school closings, power outages, and the endless procession of martyrs. After tearful goodbyes, Basima and I parted. We had promised to always write and call when we could, and we did stay in touch. Through marriages, children, and a divorce, we managed to stay in each other's lives despite the distance. As the years passed, Basima became more conservative, and she started wearing the hijab, the Islamic headscarf. The hijab was fine with me. I consider myself a progressive Muslim, which essentially means I give extra to charity when I don't feel like fasting, I only drink alcohol with non-Arab friends, and I absolutely unrelentingly do not eat pork. But none of that mattered to Basma until I noticed that she no longer cursed when we spoke long distance, and everything seemed to happen because of divine intervention. Still, these were not unbearable things, not enough to alter a friendship. But then one night last year, I got a call. I have something to tell you, Basima said. I was alarmed. This sounded more serious than the village pervert squirt and run incident. <laughs> what is it, Basima? She hesitated. Well, you know how much Hatim, that's her husband, and I have been practicing Islam as deeply as we can, Allah willing? Sure, Allah willing. Seconds passed, and she finally admitted. A few months ago, I started wearing the niqab. Niqab? What did you say, Basima? I'm wearing niqab. I, it's the veil. I'm completely covered now. Her tone was patient and kind, the way you are with a child uh, that is about to throw a tantrum. Niqab. I was shocked. Then I was downright angry. What the fuck? Forgive me, Allah. But <laughs> the veil is not Islamic. It's a twisted scheme some backwards men came up with, like the invention of silicone breasts. 
It seemed a bizarre and primitive thing in the new millennium. For God's sake, a black president had been elected. Revolutions were happening around the world. Arab countries were demanding democracy. So how can Basima, a once reasonable and confident girl, adopt the lifestyle of the veil? It was my choice, she insisted on the phone. I can't tell you how happy I am to be wearing it. As long as it's your own choice, I guess I must respect that, I finally conceded. Veil or no veil, Basima was still my dear friend. It was a piece of fabric after all. It couldn't possibly transform a person on the inside. So when she told me a few months ago that she would be coming to Illinois to attend a relative's wedding, I was thrilled. We would pick up right where we left off. We had witnessed semen together, for crying out loud. We had a significant history. So here I am now, standing outside room 305 at the Best Western in Gurney Mills, and my stomach is in knots. I suddenly feel awkward and out of place. I look down at my clothes, a pair of skinny jeans and black boots, a floral blouse with sheer sleeves. Would Basma disapprove and look at me in disdain? Before I could swivel around on my heels and escape into the elevator, the door opens. All I see is a hand summoning me in. Basima emerges from behind the door and she beams at me. She is still so naturally lovely and her skin doesn't contain a single wrinkle as far as I could see. I start to think that maybe this veil thing isn't such a bad idea in terms of UV protection and looking young. <laughs> you haven't changed one bit, she exclaims, and she hugs me so hard and doesn't let go and I'm no longer nervous, and I hug her back. Meanwhile, that hotel odor lingers in the air. It's thick with layers of deodorizers that have been applied over and over as guests check in and out. The room is dark despite the, draw the open curtains and every lamp is turned on. As soon as we sit on a sofa, I let loose a torrent of questions. What is it like to wear the veil? How do you keep it from sliding off? How do you eat in restaurants? She finally stands up. I'll just show you, she says. A few moments later, Basima emerges from the bathroom. I take in this small figure completely concealed in a light black fabric. I'm surprised and a little scared. I keep quiet as though an important person has entered the room and I must remain solemn or something will shatter. I remember my own clothes that seem to cling to every curve of my body and I self-consciously fold my sheer sleeved arms across my chest. Covered from head to toe, Basma seems right at home in that hotel room. I have never felt more out of place. Here I am, she announces. At my doubtful expression, she laughs a little, extending her arm so that she looks like a bat in flight. I take a few cautious steps towards her. It's still Basma, somewhere under there. You see, she explains excitedly, there's an inner layer with strings that I tie to keep from flying off. So here it is. The niqab is put on and the veil is lifted. Its reality is not so bizarre after all. The initial excitement fades and now we can just be ourselves and catch up. Basma gives me some earrings and a designer purse and while I admire these gifts feeling like indeed, we're just like old girlfriends again. She picks up the room phone and quickly dials. Yahya, she instructs her son who is in the adjacent room, bring me the Quran. A few moments later, there's a knock at the door, and her son enters with a white paper bag. Basima pulls out the holy book so carefully and deliberately, like a fisherman extracting a precious pearl from the fleshy softness of an oyster. She hands the book to me. 
The cover is a deep midnight blue with gold embossed letters. It's not just the original Arabic text, but a translated one with commentary in the margins on each page, and it contains transliteration. It is the mother of all holy books, and I feel its weight in my trembling hands, and I want to shout, I'm not worthy! I'm not worthy. Before I can hand it back to Basima, she looks at me seriously and says, Sahar, you're already a good human being. You have wonderful gifts. Reading this book will only make you better. Then she leans in conspiratorially. Do you know what going out in public without wearing a headscarf is equivalent to in Islam? She asks. Then her voice drops. It's like being a prostitute, she whispers. I am dumbfounded, and I feel Basima slowly edging away from me, though she's not moved an inch from my side. That's what it's like, she insists. You can take small steps to improve yourself, like simply wearing the hijab. It doesn't have to be the full veil like me. Then everything changes in that moment. I'm still in the same smelly hotel room, sitting beside my dear childhood friend, my best friend in the whole world, and my stomach sinks. It's not sadness exactly, because yes, Fasma has changed, but she appears happy. She has made different choices and she's happy. I have chosen another path, one of intellectual curiosity and education. It's not a matter of which choice is better, it's a matter of self-satisfaction, of personal contentment. But I know I've lost Basima somehow, because her good intentions to convert me will always shroud her willingness to accept me for who I am, like she did when she met that awkward and lanky girl decades ago. We embrace before I leave, and it's not as firm as our first hug. We offer each other lukewarm assurances that we'll be in touch as soon as she returns to St. Croix, but we never make any plans to see each other again. When I get home, I run my fingers over the Qur'an she gave me. For a few moments, I marvel at its exquisite cover before setting it on a mantle in my living room next to other charming decorations. That was Zahar Mustafa. Her short story titled She's a Love was nominated for a 2013 Pushcart Prize, and her work has been featured on stage at Second Story as well as in the literary magazine Word Riot. If her story gives you ideas for your own second story, we'd love to hear them. Join us in Chicago at the Underground Wonder Bar on January 26th for True Lies, Stories of Deception. Or join us at the Afterwards Bookstore on February 7th for a reading from our recently released anthology titled Briefly Knocked Unconscious by a Low-Flying Duck. For tickets or for more information about Second Story, please visit our website at secondstory.com. That's 2ndstory.com. Second Story podcasts are brought to you in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the City Arts Grants, the Arts Works Fund, and the Chicago Community Foundation. Podcast support from Amanda Delheimer Diamond, Bobby Badrisky, Second Story Publishing Committee, JC Ava Lotus, Nick Kawahara, Eric Hazen, Danielle Ezel, Sherry Pentamo, CP Chang, and myself. I'm Ozzie Totten, and this is Second Story. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>